House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is here again, freshly wrapped his meat. I did that. I did that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. For bringing that up to the world. Well, they need to know that you're clean and efficient and wraps your meat. I'm a rapper. Yes. With a W. <laughs> I was going to say, I never knew you were a rapper. Yeah. That's yeah. that's great. That's great. We, we have to play is. some of your rap here one day. Get right on that. Yeah. Find me not, not on Spotify or anyplace else. Find my brother, though. He's a musician. Yeah, but he's good. <laughs> that's true. That's true. He's, he's very good. Well, today we've got Mr. Ryan Steck here to talk about his book, Fields of Fire. Thank you for being here, Ryan. Thanks for having me on, Al. And Joe. Glad, glad to hear your meat's wrapped. <laughs> this is going to live forever. <laughs> well, that's where I throw things out. I hope they do live forever. But, I, um, I, can, I can be known for worse things. Um, Ryan, you, you called it Fields of Fire, the real spy book. So what, what does that mean? Well, I don't call Fields of Fire a real spy book necessarily. I mean, there's, there's espionage elements to it, but, but to be really honest with you, it's kind of more of a modern day Western, which is funny. Um, you know, the sort of the log line for the book is a former Marine Raider, uh, returns to his hometown in Montana for the first time in over a decade to find his adopted father murdered. And as he begins to investigate what might have happened, accidentally unearths a global conspiracy that only he can stop. And I first started working on this like six years ago. At the time, Westerns weren't popular at all, really, not like mainstream. Yellowstone wasn't out yet. Um, and I remember telling my agent when when I first set out to write it, I said, I'm going to write, it's going to be Vince Flynn meets C.J. Box. And he said, you know, what's, what's that look like? And I said, just give me like a year. We're going to find out. And when it was done, I told him this is really more of a modern Western. And he said, like, let's don't ever repeat that. And I agreed. I said, yeah, let's never, ever repeat that. And when I signed the deal, the book deal, I told my publisher, you know, this is really more of a modern day Western, but I don't ever want to repeat that. And then here we are today. And Westerns are so like successful and right in the mainstream, like everything, like every, like here we are in November, everyone's waiting for the new season of Yellowstone. So I pretty much have done every interview. Like, so anyways, Fields of Fire is a modern day Western. And I walked that back pretty, pretty quickly. You need to change the cover and put like a cowboy hat on there or something. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a Western vibe to the cover. And I think they did even better with, with book two. So I think we're, we're inching in that direction slowly. What made you go that direction? Like, why, why write a Western thriller as opposed to what you were doing? I, I love Vince Flynn. You know, I mentioned him and C.J. Box. So they're my two favorite authors, um, and they couldn't be more different, right? You have Vince Flynn, who's political thrillers. Mitch Rapp is the biggest badass ever created. And then you have C.J. Box. His series is about a game warden set in Wyoming. Uh, Joe Pickett, he, he's a terrible shot, always finds himself in trouble. And I just really love both of them. So I didn't know for sure what I wanted to write. As a book spy, I mean, I, I've written coming up on, I think, 2,000 book reviews in 10 years. So I didn't want to write anything that was close to something I had worked on or reviewed or anything like that. And one day it kind of hit me that we never see the Mitch Raps or the James Bonds or the Jason Bournes out west. That's not something we, we normally see, and I'm not sure why. 
because these guys are always the, the, the lone wolf types, right? Like, and, and that's so perfect for out West where backup is not minutes away. It is hours, sometimes days. So it really heightens that like you're alone, you are on your own uh, mentality and, um, but to put a book out west, you kind of have to find a, a, a plot that that fits it. And so it wasn't necessarily my goal to write a western, but to explore these types of characters, these operators um, in a place that we don't normally see them. And that led me to Montana. Well, Ryan, you said you've written 2,000 reviews, and those don't know, Ryan's the, the real real book spy, right? And uh, Correct. I'm, I always, always interpose the words. But so you're a writer. You have a writer's background. And then you did the review site where you were like the, the biggest review site for thrillers. And now why the jump to books? What made you what made you write the book? Oh, I mean I've always wanted to write. Um I've I've always wanted to write a book. I, I have other manuscripts, by the way, like this was not my first one. I have other manuscripts that I worked on, a couple that were completed. Um this one was a little different. So Forever longer, decades back in high school, I was uh, in 10th grade. I had an English class where we had this really young intern uh, named Shay Vanderstelt, and she's a dear friend of mine now today. But back then, she came in and assigned this project on a Friday, said, go home, write whatever you want. And she was so, like, young and hip and cool, nothing was off limits. So she said, you guys can write about violence, you can swear, you can do anything you want. Well, like when you're like 15 and someone says you can write violence and swear, that was exciting. So I was kind of the class clown, didn't take school real seriously. But I went home and I found myself like really trying and in a way that I'd never really um, put forth that much uh, effort into a school project. And a lot of things, Joe, because, I mean, you're a great author. Like, you know these things, like setting the scene and showing before you tell. A lot of these things, I didn't even know the terms for them, but I was I was sort of drawn to trying to get it right, if that makes sense. And uh, I wrote about a teenager named Matthew Red who defends his school against an attack. He's like a vigilante. And I turned it in, did not know that it was a peer review assignment. So the next day, I can still remember the, the kid's name. His name's Trenton Hearn. And if he ever hears this, I'm deeply sorry. He had to read my story out loud. And it was just full of language and violence and all the stuff that, you know, I, I you give me an inch, I was going to take it 10 miles. And he kept stopping, like, should I keep reading? And they let him read it. Next day, um, I was proud of my work. I got called down to the principal's office. There was the principal, the vice principal, my parents, and the superintendent. So I knew that one wasn't a good meeting walking in. And they had my short story, uh, which I titled Maddie Red. After a lengthy discussion where my parents defended me because technically I absolutely followed the directions, uh, they suspended me from school for a week. The reasoning was it was way too laden with violence and language and stuff that was not appropriate for a 15-year-old to be writing. Um, I had the kind of parents, I don't know about you guys, but if I got in trouble at school, I was in trouble at home. That's what they always taught me. That, that was the rule, right? You get in trouble at school, you're in trouble at home. That was the one time I got in trouble at school that I did not get in trouble at home. Uh, my parents were smart enough to realize that, again, I actually put a lot of effort into this, and I did do the assignment. I followed uh, the guidelines that were given to me. So they didn't feel like I was the one that should have necessarily been held responsible. So I got a week off school, and um, the big joke in our house is that principal, he was a young principal back then. He's my kid's principal today. 
Don Eastman, and uh, I like to tell him that joke's on him because Matthew Red got me a week off school and a book deal. But uh, to answer your question, I mean, covering books has been a passion of mine. Uh, you mentioned I had a writer's background. I was a sports writer for a while. Uh, I'm dyslexic, and my doctor told me to start reading. I didn't even know I was dyslexic until I was an adult. That's when I finally was tested and, and found that out. Encouraged me to read. And I Googled dyslexic authors because I thought I want to, I'm going to like find the person that beat this and did it well. Vince Flynn came up. That's how I got into his stuff. That's how I became a fan of Mitch Rapp. And I'd always wanted to, um, to tell these stories. When I had the, the plot idea originally for Fields of Fire, once I realized that I wanted to take an operator and put it out, put them out west, I sort of had this storyline. I needed a hero, um, to sort of anchor that story. And I just started thinking to myself, like, what would this red character that I created all these, like, decades ago, he was so real to me then. Like, what would he be doing now? And, I mean, obviously, your perspective changes through life experience. You know, I was a father, a husband now, not a teenage kid. And I thought, what would he be up to? And um, I had so much fun exploring that that I just felt like I owed it to the character and the story to sit and, and, and try to figure it out and slog through a hundred thousand words, which you know is, is not easy. And, um, you know, when I was done, I was, I was really happy with it and my agent liked it and it felt like it was the, the right manuscript to, uh, to try and sell. So maybe explain, uh, the real bookspy.com. What is that? So it's a website that I run, um, dedicated to all things thriller. So I kind of mentioned that I, I had a sports background. So I used to, for, for one season, actually, uh, I covered the Detroit Lions. I was a beat reporter. That was miserable because they went 0-16. Um, and they haven't been good since, really. <laughs> so so I've not missed much on the beat. Um, but the way, I, the way I saw it is when I was transitioning into the book world, um, I thought of it as like when you cover an NFL team, you cover from the coaches to the players, even the owners, but also the like the rest of the league, whoever they're playing, stuff like that. And so that was sort of my my mindset and mentality was anyone could just write book reviews. I wanted to really cover the genre the same way I, and the industry the same way I was taught to cover like a sporting team or or the NFL. So I sort of viewed it as, you know, the authors uh, are like the players and the publishers you know, are like the coaches or the owners and, and, and the whole thriller genre was like the sporting league. So yes, we do book reviews, but also interviews, uh, book announcement, cover reviews, uh, stuff like that, you know, a lot like top 10 lists, just stuff that's designed to create discussion and debate and get people talking about books, but also help you. If you know, you're a fan of this author, then my goal is to help you find other books that you might also enjoy. So it's kind of um, all things thriller, uh, top to bottom. At least that's what we try to do. So when it says that you're um, an online influencer, is that like, uh, you know, like Britney Spears or something? Yeah, a- Amazon named me. Uh, they had a program a few years ago. And um, before, like, their affiliate programs were open to everyone, they were, like, naming online influencers and Amazon named me an online influencer, and um, my kids fail to recognize that that's a really cool title when they're talking about me as opposed to, you know, some other person that is Internet famous. So I, I got nothing out of it, essentially. But, um, yeah, I guess it was to recognize at the time 
I think the year they named me an online influencer, the book spy had 2 million unique impressions. So we were bringing in a lot of traffic. We were selling a lot of books and, and, and encouraging people to buy books and, and helping them find new ones. So I, I guess I earned that, that title way back then, but um, my kids absolutely refused to refer to me that way. Smart kids. Yeah. So, Ryan, having read all the books that you read and written the reviews, what pieces, what factors did you take from having that vast wealth of knowledge of, of filler books to move into writing your own book? Just say, I want to avoid this. I want to keep that. I know you had the Western idea and you pulled up the guy from your past, but but you know what makes things good and what makes things bad, what makes things readable. How did you piece that together? It's a great question, Joe. You know, I've done the whole publicity tour. No one's asked me that yet. Not a single person. Maybe it's not a good question, but we'll shoot it out there and see what you say. You know, no, I, It's a great question because I, what I've tried to do is I, I really – look, the business is so subjective. If you would have asked me to review the first Twilight book, I would have been like, this is absolute awful. Like, this this sucks. Um, and my wife would have loved it. And who would have been right? Because that book went on to sell how many hundreds of millions of copies? So I've always believed no one should be allowed to say if something's good or bad. Instead, in my time as a book spy, I've been fortunate to get to know a lot of readers, and I've listened to feedback about books that I think they're going to like, and then, you know, figure out, do they like it? So when I I read a book very early, right, like usually around six months before it comes out, I'm going to post a review. I literally wait because I'll find something that I think is really good that my followers will like. Books by readers will enjoy. But I, I, I feel anxious like the author does before it actually comes out because I don't know if I'm right. So I paid attention to that over the years. What's the kind of books that I've enjoyed that they've also enjoyed? And then I, I thought back to, you know, a lot of books where, you know how you're reading a book. And I, I mean, I'll, certainly I'm not going to name names or, or titles, but you're reading a book. You're like, this is excellent. And then one thing takes you out of it. And you're like, how why'd they do that? Uh, I certainly had a little list of things like that. Uh, I don't love the the trope where the hero's girlfriend, wife, fiance dies every book. Um, that was the I will tell you up front. That's one of the main things I wanted to avoid. And the the interesting thing about that um, in my in my book, Matthew Red sort of has a love interest, his high school sweetheart that he hasn't seen in over a decade. Name's Emily. Well, we had discussions with other publishers before I actually signed uh, with Tyndale. And I can remember, like, very vividly, there's one conversation with a publisher where they they said, like, hey, we want to make sure moving forward your plans for book two is you're going to kill Emily off, right? And I thought, like, no, like, they don't get it. Clearly, I didn't sell that she was Red's moral compass, and I wanted to – I wanted to sort of build him out even through her eyes, right? Uh, Joe, as someone that I know has a, an A-plus, you know, rock star wife like myself, that's really important, I think, to us. And and I looked to my wife for a lot, and I love the moment in 300, King Leonidas, right before he kicks that Persian down the endless pit, he looks over to the queen and she nods, and he, you know, that's when he goes forward and says, this is Sparta, and drop kicks the guy down the, yeah, the pit. I love that moment, and that's what I was setting up. You know, Red is a quiet guy, um, doesn't talk a lot, but she brings out the best in him. And I remember thinking just, like, I was devastated. I was just like, wow, like, they don't get that. And I had my conversation with Tyndale, and I the first conversation they said, we want to know who's the fundamental pieces to this franchise, because we love Red, but we really love Emily. We want to make sure you're not killing her off. And I was I was ecstatic. Um, 
So that was a trope that I wanted to kind of avoid because I like seeing these characters in impossible situations like everybody else. One impossible situation I think would be really tough is you have to go save the world, but you also have kids to put to bed. And I didn't want that to come across as cliched, but I, I know I have six kids. I'm married. Like, that's the life I know. And I wanted Red to experience some of that. Um, beyond that, yeah, there were there's things that I would pick up on as a fan myself that I, I realized pretty early that when it comes to action, readers like that. They like big doses of action, and they like, they like heavyweights. They like seeing... Uh, and it, it goes to my theory, why are the top-selling, you know, pay-per-view UFC and boxing matches of all time? They're usually heavyweights, you know? People like knockout power. And it was no coincidence that Red is a big guy. Matthew Red is like six foot three, 265 pounds, and uh, the henchman for, for the bad guy in book one is even bigger than him. And I liked that. You know, I liked that he comes in and intimidates everyone in the room until he's got to go toe-to-toe with this guy even bigger than him. Um so, I mean, those are like a couple of things without putting down any other books or, or anything like that. But I, I felt like I had a sense of what readers wanted. Pacing is king. You have to have a book that moves pretty quickly. Get them involved into the action as soon as you can. And um, wanted to try a few different things when it comes to fleshing out my protagonist and maybe his family life. Now, when you put him in Montana, rural Montana, is that for a particular reason or is that setting like a character to this to this this story. Oh yeah, the setting is definitely like a character to this story and really this this series moving forward. Um Montana is so vast, you know, and it's it's a beautiful state, but there's parts of it that are very unlike other parts of it. And what I found is it'd be very easy to get yourself into trouble out there <laughs> if you knew what you were doing. And red certainly is a magnet for trouble. And to be honest with you, I, I would have, I was really down to like Wyoming and Montana, but CJ box has his whole series set in Wyoming. And I thought, ah, I can't do that. So, um, so I went with the next best and I, and I picked Montana. And, and what kind of research do you put into something like this when you're, when you're going to a, that kind of a story and in Montana? Well, it's interesting. Cause I really haven't been to Montana. Um, I was going to go, so I wrote the book. Now, I was really lucky because I, I had two people that I was fairly good friends with, I knew, that moved out there. Um, allowed me to really pick their brains and and, and ask a lot of questions. Um, and thank God for things like Google Maps and stuff like that. And um, But I was going to go when COVID hit. And once the COVID lockdowns happened, I wasn't going anywhere. Even if I could have caught a flight. At that time, um, I'm pretty sure my wife would have been less than impressed if I would have hopped on an airplane and left her alone with six kids in quarantine. So I actually am not – I'm going to Montana for the first time uh, next spring and excited to actually, like, put boots on the ground and do research that way. I also – I had um, – I knew someone who was fairly close, and um, and and they went and they happened to be going on a trip there and, and did some research for me. So – it was a lot of secondhand research, if that makes sense. Just one more thing where uh, where the COVID pandemic um, changed the way I would have liked to have done it, but uh, made made do with what I could. Ryan, I know Ryan. Ryan's a nice guy. Now, the bad guys in your book, they're pretty bad guys. How did you get in those characters to create those realistic bad guys? Well, 
do you live them? Do you think them? Do you they, are the aspects of somebody that you might know saying, "Oh, I hate it when that when that guy does that. He's now my part of my bad guy." Oh, I do that all the time. Like, there's not a person in the books that die with a random name. I can promise you that. Uh, every every name was every name of someone that dies in this book. I can promise you is someone that 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 I probably have met um, and didn't think the world of. But no, uh, let's name names here. Let's yeah. <laughs> I read it. I go back to the book and see that. Yeah, yeah I, I can. Mine wasn't there so far, so that's good. I can no. I can tell you that's that's especially true uh, in book two. I think you have to have a compelling villain. I I got pretty lucky because um, for me. Uh, there's a guy in my book, you know, there's several villains, really, but there's this guy named Anton Gage, and he's a he's a billionaire buying up all this farmland, and um, seems like a really nice guy. And, you know, that was pretty much on par with, like, Bill Gates. And, in fact, a lot of people were asking me, like, is Anton Gage, like, is that Bill Gates? I'd have borrowed from, you know, that a little bit. What was worked out great for me was everyone thought Bill Gates was like everyone's uncle, you know, the super nice billionaire until he got divorced. And suddenly there were some things coming out about him that maybe, you know, not the whole world didn't necessarily know. And uh, that fit perfect for me because the timing on that was great. Like suddenly it might not be so unbelievable that a billionaire buying up all the farmland might have less than, you know, great intentions. Um, and might not be, you know, the, the super good guy. Beyond that, I think there's a, a Vince Flynn school of thought here. Um, his bad guys were always, like, pretty linear. Um, if you study the Mitch Rapp series, one thing that you find is Vince would introduce bad guys, and he was really good at making bad guys that you hated. Bad guys that you hate that you want Mitch Rapp to kill. In fact, a lot of his books themselves, the plots are very linear, what drives the pacing is, is I don't know how this guy's bad, but I know he's bad, and I don't know how Mitraff's going to kill him, but I can't wait till he does. And he was really good at that. So I did certainly try, uh, I believe, one of two things makes a bad guy really good. Either you hate him so bad you can't wait for the main character to finally take him out, take him off the board, or you can sort of empathize with why they're doing what they're doing. And I tried to straddle and, and, and sow seeds of both in there. Uh, if that makes sense, without spoiling it, obviously. But um, I tried. I tried my best to do a little bit of both there. So, what comes first? Is it the uh, story or the character? Well, I mean, for me, it was the character uh, because I created him so long ago, and then realized he was right for this story. And this story changed a lot. I mean, Fields of Fire is. I, I can tell you, there's not a single mentioning of human trafficking in the book. When I first wrote the the original draft six years ago, the whole plot was around human trafficking. And my agent said at the time, he said, like, that's not something people want to read about. Take that out. Which, literally, <clears throat> I'm almost done doing that. And Mark Graney put out a Gray Man book about human trafficking. And I was like, oh, well, I guess you can write about that stuff. But in the end, I think it was the right call. It was probably the, the wrong plot for my first book in a series. Um, something I'd like to touch on, though, because it's 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 a big, important issue that I think we don't cover uh, enough, both media but also even in fiction. So for me, it was a character. I maintain that if it's a series, the character should always come first and be the most important thing to that franchise. I tease Kyle Mills. You guys know Kyle Mills. He took over for Vince Flynn. And every year he and I talk, and you know he'll do this thing like, man, I don't know what I'm going to write about next year. And I always joke – 
same dad joke every year. You could write about Mitch Rapp doing groceries, and I'd still buy the book because you love the character and you want to hang with them. So I think character, a hundred times out of a hundred, if it's a series, comes first, and then you let the story come to you, and you find a story worth telling that involves them. But yeah, I think I think it all starts with your hero. Well, you kind of took my next question because you're you got a series going on. You know, I got a series going. I actually asked you this question a while ago, but you know, you, you have the character. You know, you want to change your character going into the second book. Do you know? how you want them to, him to change. You say, okay, I want them to do this. Therefore I'm now going to write the plot to make that happen. Or, you know, how, how you, how you sketching it out in your mind, going series, going series, <laughs> character, plot. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I know it does. It's, um, it's an interesting process for me because uh, the one variable here that like we haven't discussed is Red feels so real to me that it makes writing him much harder, okay? So I'll be in a situation that I set up really well, and I know that if I do this, I can get Red to say or do that. And then he does not play ball with me. So I'll go to write him, and something feels really off about it. And I know deep down, this is not how he would respond here. And it just, oh, my gosh. Like, I can't tell you how much hair I've lost writing book two because it makes so it makes everything harder. Um and yes, look, I, as the writer, I can force his hand and make him do it, but it feels untrue to character for me, and I think the character needs to feel very real. So I know in my life I face a, a circumstance. I know how Ryan would respond, and I know how Matthew Red would respond, and I wish I could respond more like Matty Red sometimes, to be frank with you. But I'm also not 6'3 and 265 pounds of muscle, um, although this is radio, right? So I guess I could probably get away with yeah. saying that I'm actually six, four, uh, and two seventy pounds of muscle, but no, I, uh, I think that for me, the process has been understanding your character. And then as I start to plot the story, I know how he's going to react to these things that makes it challenging. Yes. But it also is kind of a gift. Uh, when your character is that real to you, you don't have to sit and wonder how does he respond? And then what happens? I already know. So I know what he's going to do in, in, in any given situation. And I kind of have to write around it. Um, yeah, makes it more challenging, but it also makes it more rewarding when it all kind of works out. Do I know long-term where I want him to go? Yes. I had sat down, um, and outlined like six, seven books out for stories and his growth as as a person. When you meet him in Fields of Fire, right away, I mean, he's he's kicked out of the military. He's lost his father. The two things that he most identifies with are taken from him. And I wanted to explore that. I wanted to strip him, break him down right to the studs, and then sort of rebuild him from there. So when everything that you identify with is taken from you, what are you left with? And that's that's a theme I wanted to explore. So I know where that goes moving forward. Um, whether it's family life or career or whatever it is. And um, for Red, those are really important things to him. So when someone messes with them, uh, you poke that bear, you're, you're going to, you're going to get the, the upset Maddie Red that, you know, spurs these, these action scenes. And I can tell you in book two, everything that he's been building uh, is threatened. And, so if you think he's against it in Fields of Fire, like he's he's really up against the fire in book two. Yeah, but you have him wrap his meat. 
Yeah, no, right, no, that that needs to happen there's, for sure. There's some, um, there's some grilling going on in that book. Is there some steaks and things? <laughs> there could be yeah. now. Yeah, there could be for uh, sure. But, you know, this is this is an important part here now. So uh, now, for people that are not writers that are listening, they they just read or they enjoy these types of books. You you you've mentioned a few things where you say where you'd like to uh, have Red go, but you know he won't do it, and forcing his hand and. Uh, and and things like this. So maybe explain that, or explain how you experience your character, Red. Like, what's what's going on here? Is this like a, a friend, a family? Is it children? Is it like a movie? Uh, how can you describe this to someone that doesn't write? Okay, so let me. So here's my writing process first. So I'll break that down because I think it it's relevant to this. So I am. Terrible. I don't, I don't really outline. In fact, I wasn't going to outline book two. Uh, I told my agent, you know, I really stood up for myself and said, look, I don't outline. I'm not going to outline book two. I'm just going to write it. And he goes, yeah, no, you're not. Uh, you have a payment tied to that. So you're going to, you're going to do an outline so we can turn it into your publisher and you get paid. And I was like, oh, shoot. I didn't, I didn't realize that. So I wrote like four pages of, uh, to me, it was like a long synopsis. And I thought there's no way they're going to accept this and got a check like two weeks later. So it all worked out. For me, I can't sit down and think like, okay, what am I writing today? So if I were to wake up and write and just look at my Word document, I would never get anything down. Um, I work all day, but I'm thinking about, I literally take things a chapter at a time. So all day long in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about this chapter that I need to write tonight. What's going to happen? And I sort of just play through it in my mind like a scene in a movie. And once I get it to where I like it, um, I can write it. And so that's when I, so my scheduling is I usually get up early and I'll start thinking in the shower, brushing my teeth, getting ready, you know, eating breakfast and get my kids around. I'm thinking about that chapter tonight. And then I go to work. You know, I, I've worked as an editor. I've worked as a book spy and I, I'm, I'm busy. So I don't, don't think about it a lot, but you know, free time between calls, stuff like that. It's in the back of my mind. When I go down for dinner is when I really shift. So about 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the evening, I'm really thinking about that. Um, and put the kids to bed and all that, start start writing, usually around 10 o'clock, so like 10 to, 10 to midnight. And it's not real long, but I think if you can get like one chapter in, if you get 1,500 to 2,000 words, well, you know, two months in, you got a rough draft of a book if you never take a day off. So I have to know what I'm writing before I can sit down and write it. Now, the reason that's relevant is because that gives me a lot of time to try and avoid situations where I write myself into a jam. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of nights I'll finish writing a chapter, and I'm like, Oof, all right, like, I don't know how I'm getting out of this yet, but this is, I like this. You know, I think this is pretty good. And my publisher would do that when I was turning in pages for book two. They would, like, quite often say, Wow, like Ryan, we love this. We can't wait to see how you get Maddie right out of this one. And I'm like, yeah, me, me too. I need to go figure that out. Um, so that's so again, that's relevant because I'll think I have it all figured out, and I can give you an exact example. I was writing book two, and Red is confronting who he thinks the bad guys are, and it's a gang of bikers at a local bar, and. The way the scene had worked in my head was he was going to go in, confront him, and then leave. And the problem is when I sat down to write it, I thought, no, he's, Red's a hothead, and he's, he's, he's upset right now. This guy is super pissed off. 
for reasons I can't explain because it's spoilers. But I just knew there was no chance he was going to walk outside, get in his truck, and leave. And I cannot tell you the headache that created for me. Because if I could have just wrote it that way, I could have got to the next chapter. I could have kept going. And I knew in my heart that's not what he would do. He was going to pick the, the the hard path on that one. And um, I didn't intend for any sort of action sequence, but I just had to be real to the character and very true. So the more I sat and thought, like, God, what would he do here? He's so out outmanned and outnumbered and... What would he do? Would that matter to him? And at the end of the day, I just thought, no, I got to be true to Red. So uh, book two is called Lethal Range. comes out next August, uh, August 15th. And for people who read it, you know, if they hear this, they're going to know exactly when they get to that scene. And maybe they'll even laugh because you could see where it'd make a lot more sense for Red to just walk out, hop on his truck and go. Could not do it. So I instead uh, had to write like another three chapters because once I figured out how he would react, it did not fit with where I thought the story would go. And I had to like build in the bridge. That's the kind of thing that happens all the time. Like that's a specific example, but it happens to me all the time with him um, where if I could just get him to play ball with me and cooperate and go down this direction, I can go on to the next chapter that I want to tell. But when it doesn't fit him, and deep down I know that, I just can't bring myself to do it. It feels like taking the easy way out as a, as a creator and a writer. So I stay true to the character, and it does create more work. Like, I, I'll give you, uh, Joe, you know, so the, the rule in our industry is a thriller is supposed to be 100,000 words. I've always set out to write 100,000 words. Fields of Fire was like 118,000, and I think book two is like 116,000. And I can tell you for sure that's an exact um, reaction to Red not doing what I want and me having to write around that and create bridges back to the story. Yeah, but as you know, I had to cut thousands of words out of my, my book, too. It's just, you know, that stuff they call purple purple haze. It's just, it's in there, but what's it really serving the purpose of? Which is kind of my question, which is, it, how much do you think about the reader, not to say fans, but the reader as you're writing the character that you know really well? Is, is, are you willing to sacrifice your character's characteristics because, you know, you know, the readers don't like that. You know, as, as Hood says, if you get yes. stuck, shoot, you know, kill somebody type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great saying from Josh. I, my saying in book two was when I get stuck, I write to my best friend. Um, my, my real life best friend, his name's Mikey Durhammer lives right across the street from me, bought the house across from mine. We have brother dogs, uh, big Rotties, big Rottweilers. My dog's name is Rubble. His is Luke. And I wrote him into my, my series uh, in book two um, and did not tell my agent or publisher that, that he was completely based on a real person. And the feedback was, we love this character, Ryan. You did a great job fleshing him out. And I finally had to confess and, and come clean. I would, Maddie Red would get me stuck. And I would literally, the joke was, uh, and we're very close with Mikey and his wife, Emily. They're like family. We're with him every night, have dinner every night. And I just kept laughing, saying, you were supposed to play a small role in this book. And you're like, sharing every page with with red because every time i get stuck i just have you show up which is you know i mean real life for me like every i i'm not like the mr mechanic that kind of thing so every time something like that like i'm calling my best friend to you know come help me and i so i relied on that now that was that, so that's my when i'm stuck I, I kill someone uh when i get stuck i call in mikey and again you, you can see that in book two i think of the reader every single page i think um 
not every decision is going to resonate with every reader, but my goal is to take what I know from a decade, a decade of books buying is create something that these readers will enjoy. And so very much so when I'm in a, a scenario where I could go left or right on something, I think of the reader for sure. And I'm trying to give them right even down to the action. You know, there was a scene that I really thought readers would enjoy in book two. And when I turned it into my publisher, they were like, hey, just checking. Just want to make sure you know there's this action sequence. It's like very long. Did you mean for it to be that long? And I was like, kind of laughed. Like, yes, yes, I, I meant to do that. I think readers are going to like that. Now, the, the very limited advanced readers who have looked at Lethal Range, the feedback has been that's their favorite part of the book, and that, that really made me feel good. Um, I think you have to write for the... I, I, I admire the writers who are like, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'll write what I want. If people don't like it, oh, well. That's great. I, I sometimes wish I could do that, but I don't feel that way at all. Um, I think that if you don't People don't like your book. You don't have a career doing this, right? They, they need to like your, your characters and your books, or what's the point? So I think of the reader all the time, and um, I can tell you that's why I have to work so hard when Red doesn't play ball with me and my stories. I have to work so hard to write around that to, to re-engage the reader because I think that's a really important uh, step is, is always holding the reader's attention and trying to keep them engaged from chapter to chapter. So someone goes out and picks up your book and uh, takes it home and reads it. Um, besides the entertainment value and the thrill of it itself, do you have a, a subtext or some sort of theme or something that you're hoping that they take away from, from the book besides all of that entertainment and action? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's several kind of underlying themes, if that makes sense. Well, a big one for me is loyalty. Um, a really big one for me is that blood makes you relatives, not family. Uh, I don't think family has anything to do with bloodlines. Um, my my oldest three kids are adopted, and I love them every bit as much as my younger three kids, uh, who are biologically mine. And Red is adopted. That was something I wanted to explore. The idea, again, we touched on this earlier, that you could have everything you identify with stripped from you um, and feel like a broken, you know, person. And where do you go from there? That was a really big one because I think, especially during COVID, it was a really tough time for people. And, um, there might be a lot of people who felt that way coming out of the pandemic, you know, and that's something that was worth exploring for me. Again, I don't want to spoil it, but, um, worth, worth exploring. And, and loyalty is something that we see less and less of, you know, in this world. And that's an important trait, I think, for the people you keep close to you. Certainly for, for someone like Matthew Red, uh, but definitely for me as well. And so, yeah, there's a few nods in there, certainly, uh, about things that I think are, are bigger than fiction or, or, you know, badass heroes, stuff like that. Yeah, there's some, there's some real life sewn in there, you know, um, from family issues on, on down that are important to me. That's interesting, which leads me kind of an, the question of you've read – a lot of books. Yeah, you followed the industry, and you're you're now you're in the writing part of the industry. Where's it going? Where is thriller market? You know, maybe not yeah, thriller market going in books. You know, are you using your books to to move the market in that direction, or is it just or not just? But is it continuing the the current state of the market? Is it over overbought? 
Is it the same stuff? What's your sense? It's interesting because in the last few years, we've seen a real shift uh, away from the international thrillers. So you have to look at the market certain way. You look at um, new, new writers today. You know, if someone's listening, they're like, oh, I want to be an author, and I want to write international thrillers. Well, well, first of all, write it. Write what you want to read. That's, that's always my biggest advice. But if you look at it and go, well, Mark Graney does it, and Brad Thor does it, and Jack Carr does it, I could do it. That's not necessarily how the people that make decisions in this market feel. Uh, there's been a lot of authors, newer authors, uh, over the last six, seven years that debuted with major big five publishers um, that didn't do as well. And as a result of that, what we're seeing is that it's very hard for new authors with thriller series to break out. It's really tough. If I were to say to you, Joe, because you know the industry very well too, who has really busted out in a big way over the last three or four years other than Jack Carr? Like, Can, can you name anyone? Because think about that. It's a tough question, it's right? Carr. It's only Jack Carr. And I, I, well, I'm not going to do it, but you could, I could name to you authors that have tried and weren't as successful as their publishers would have hoped. Um, so one of the things we're seeing is a shift away from the international thriller. I think a lot of publishers feel like there's too many people doing that at a very high level. Um, and, and, and for me personally, I've always loved, like, my favorite Mark Graney book is Backblast. My favorite uh, Vince Flynn book is Transfer of Power. I sort of realized that I really like these domestic settings because it's locations that I know. I don't know what it's like over, you know, in Iraq or, or what that's like over there in Russia. I've never been there. But when it's set, you know, on the, on the streets of Washington, I've done that. I can picture that. That resonates with me. So as a reader, I've always gravitated more towards those domestic settings. And we're seeing that now um, from the publishers on down with the marketplace, where the market is focused. And so that's one shift for sure is uh, more more books domestically. We're also sort of seeing this uh, this shift out west, and I don't think it was me doing it. I think I I honestly think out of all the people that are writing more modern day westerns, I was probably the one that just kind of got lucky with it and and wasn't smart enough to necessarily see it coming. But guys like Connor Sullivan, man, he just won the Barry Award for uh, his debut novel, Sleeping Bear. That's got a westerny vibe to it. Mark Cameron's got a series that's kind of westerny. Um, you're seeing more authors do this. Taylor Moore is a uh, is a uh, really as I admire the heck out of him. He's got two books out. Uh, again, more cowboy thriller type stuff. So, yeah, I think that's something that we're seeing a lot more of right now, along with domestic settings. How long will it last? I have no idea. I have no idea. Maybe maybe once there's been some people that have really broken out and been really successful doing this, the industry will look for something else, M much like they're getting away from the international thrillers because they don't want their new authors competing with Jack Carr and Brad Thorpe and Mark Graney. So I have no idea where it goes from there. I'm obviously watching like everybody else and looking to see what are the trends, what works. And um, I think the thriller genre itself is strong. You know, I think sales overall uh, in all the publishing, print sales are up like 6% this year. That's huge. That tells us that people are still reading. And we know that there's a big audience for these books if they're marketed, you know, a proper way. It's why I love what you guys are doing on this show, by the way. Uh, we need people to cover them more. And uh, we'll see where it goes. But I, I would anticipate you're going to look at 
um, a lot more people going to domestic settings and looking at the problems within the United States and having their characters deal with those, as opposed to always looking overseas to the, you know, big bad Russia or ISIS or whatever it is. So you mentioned this a few times, like you were talking about um, your structure of writing and stuff. So when you're sitting there writing, um, when there's things going on that are, let's say, very, um, very hard, like, you know, when we talk about the pandemic and things and, and emotional things like that, can you still write? Or are you still effective at your 10 to 12 or 10 to midnight when you're sitting there writing at night? Or do you find that um, you can't write? You're kind of blocked. Well, I can tell you, I don't ever feel blocked from it necessarily because it does feel like an escape. You know how when you're at a point where you're really stressed in life or you're going through something and whatever, it might be a movie or a TV show or, you know, a comedy routine, something that just is that little escape for you. That's what writing was for me. Now, it impacts me more than I thought. Um, when I was doing rewrites on Fields of Fire to take human trafficking out, I was coming off of a really rough stretch of COVID and like really rough. And I, I was in a, a dark place and probably didn't realize just how dark for a time there. But I can tell you when I finished, <clears throat> I finished the manuscript, I was, I was proud of it. I sent it to my agent <clears throat> and uh, my agent, John Talbot came back and said, Hey Ryan, this is good, but man, it got a little dark here. And I hadn't realized that, like, my feelings had so been captured on the page by accident. I, I didn't mean for that to happen. It was kind of just what I knew and what I was feeling. So I never felt like writer's block from this stuff, but I was surprised just how much it influenced my writing itself. And I, I had to go back and, and, and fix that. Like, I really needed to go back and um, – <clears throat> change that because that wasn't even my intention. So it was sort of my first wake up call. And I'm glad, I'm glad John caught that. You know, that's again, what you want out of an agent um, to, to even notice that was big, but he was right. You know, and some, sometimes I go back and look at that as a reminder of where you can go if you're, if you're not careful. So yes, yeah, certainly frustration or anger or, or brokenheartedness, things that we all go through, it impacts, um, my writing more than I would have thought. And I really working to sort of, to sort of limit that and stay within the scope that I want and tell these stories as a way to even escape for myself. Yeah. I think we're going to see that a lot. Just like, you know, when there's a war and stuff going on, I think it influences, you just don't see it. You, a lot of people won't notice it. And I think it'll come out like 20 years from now, when you look back, I think we'll see how much the pandemic and different things around this time, influenced people and they didn't realize it you know i i totally agree with that yeah 100 percent. so now let's talk about where we find um where do we find ryan steck you know is he like um on social media uh do you have uh you know website uh, where where do people go out when they want to find ryan sure i'm Everywhere, Al. Um, no, I'm uh, therealbooksby.com is the easiest place to find me. So just therealbooksby.com. I'm also on Twitter at therealbooksby or at Ryan Steck author. Same with Facebook, by the way, and Instagram. I'm even on Twitch, which is a platform where you do not see a lot of thriller authors, and by a lot, I mean really none other than me. Um, growing a Twitch community, I have a Discord. 
that you can find. All all the all links to all that stuff is on the realbooksby.com. And uh Fields of Fire is available in bookstores uh, across the country. So independent bookstores, it's on Amazon. We're in 250 Barnes and Noble stores. Uh and it's in hardcover, ebook and audiobook. Wow. Well, we'll have all that up on our site too so people can find you with uh one click. You know, uh, they they want to, do you have a phone number or something you want to give out or Oh, definitely. Yes. I, these, uh, cause I, you know what? I'm excited. Today's the election. Uh, I'm ready for all of the, uh, the text messages to stop, by the way. <laughs> so yeah, I put, I, I put up a, I put up a status on Facebook yesterday that said next, next election, I'm voting for whoever doesn't text me. Um, I've pretty much reached <laughs> that point in my life. I, I had 12 of them yesterday when I put that status up on Facebook. It was ridiculous. It's been nonstop. So, I was like, man, I, yeah, I can't wait for that to be done. Um, Technology is our friend. Technology is our friend. Remember that. Yeah, it makes our life simpler and less stressful. Sure. Yeah. Well, until yeah. it doesn't. Well, every everybody loves you. That's all. They just want to know that yeah. you're voting for them. Yeah. Um. It sure feels that way. Uh. Yeah. Hey, when you when you wrote, uh, like the fields of fire, how do you know when it's ready? How do you know when it's good? Like for you, honestly. Um, I, yeah, I heard authors ask this a lot and I don't, I don't know if they're lying or if I'm completely different. I'll be honest. It sounds bad though. So I, I probably shouldn't say this, but when I'm so sick of it, I can't wait to move on. And I genuinely mean that. Um, Joe knows you can tweak a book forever, but just because you're tweaking, it doesn't mean you're making it better. And for me, I really have to reach that. I did it with book two, by the way, which is, you know, turned in, done, ready to go, completely done. I was so sick of Fields of Fire, I couldn't wait to go to book two. And I got so sick of that one, I couldn't wait to start writing book three. So that's how I know. Um, I I am very diligent through the editing process. And once I believe, okay, I've, I've done this as, as best that I possibly can, your publisher disagrees. Uh, and they put you through rounds of line editing, rounds of copy editing, and that's when I start to feel sick of it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, they want three more chairs. I don't even care at this point. Like, and I know that sounds bad, but it's true. You've spent so much time with these same words over and over again. And for me, rather than making that a negative, I look at it as a, as a positive. I feel like, okay, I've done this uh, to the point where I'm not seeing holes anymore. I don't see parts that I think are bad. I, I think this is pretty good. Now, I, I'm not self-confident. I'm not the guy that's going to, you know, be my own cheerleader and oh, this is the greatest thing ever. I don't I don't I don't think that. But if you spend the money to buy my book, I can promise you I gave it everything I had. And at the end of the day, once we've gone through that process and I always say trust the editing process, once I've gone through all that, I'm so sick of that book, I can't wait to, you know, see what comes next. That's how I know when I'm done. Yeah. Yeah, I agree totally. It's it's uh editing's really tough. It depends on how it goes, but um wow. Um, we've been talking to Mr. Ryan Steck and his book is out fields of fire and, uh, look for it and it'll be up on our website. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the house of mystery radio show to find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This is-
has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.